I'm excited to be with you again this morning. Um, it was kind of a sort of a last minute thing. My plan was to lead worship at another church this morning, and they uh, didn't uh, need my help, so I had a free morning, and, and Tim had asked me if uh, I would consider coming, so um, didn't have a lot of time to prepare other than just to ask the Lord, uh, what would you have for this morning? And so he's like, I sensed the Spirit say, just talk about what I've been talking about with you. So this is, this is uh, a conversation that I've been having with the Lord that I'm inviting you into uh, this morning. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10. If you're going to follow along in the Bible, I invite you to turn there while I introduce the conversation this morning. This past winter, my wife and I did a, a series of teachings at Drexel Hill Church called The Heart at Rest. And these teachings were particularly influenced by two books. Uh, the first one is called Effective Biblical Counseling by Larry Crabb, and the second one is called Surrender to Love by David Benner. So a lot of the thoughts that I'm going to be giving this morning, um, I'm indebted to both of them uh, for those, and then I'm going to add some of my, my own thoughts. But the series we did uh, was called The Heart at Rest, and um, what we were looking at in that series is, is what does it mean for our hearts our souls, our spirits, to truly be at peace and rest in God's presence. There's five basic components, and I would love to break this down. We don't have time for it this morning, but there's five basic components of our soul or of our spirit that Scripture talks about. Uh, The first is the mind, and there's two portions of our mind. There's the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. So there's the part of your mind that's the continuous stream of conversation that you're having. So right now you're thinking words, uh, you're saying things about your day or about what you're going to do or about what you wish was happening right now or whatever it is. You've got that continuous stream of consciousness. And then there's a part of our minds that we can't actually access um, purposefully. So sometimes that comes out in dreams. We have like a crazy dream and you're like, where did that come from? Um, Or uh, artists have famously... uh, uh, experimented with other things to try to unlock that other part of the mind, the, the unconscious mind. So there's the mind, uh, there's the heart, um, there's the will, and there is uh, the seat of emotions, which in Hebrew, um, in the Old Testament, is the bowels, where the emotions are held. So the two parts of the mind, uh, the heart, the will, and the emotions. Those are the, the five basic components of our uh, psycho-human anatomy, as Larry Crabb would say. And I found uh, that breakdown to be particularly helpful. The two of those things that I'd like to talk about uh, this morning are the mind and the heart. And then I want to introduce one more concept, and this is really where we're going to camp out, and it's the concept of the conscience. So the, the basic Greek word for the mind in the New Testament is nous, and it simply means the seat of consciousness. So um, all the thoughts you're having, the, the uh, personal awareness of life, um, of, of what's going on, conversations, all of that is in your mind, and the word for that is noose. Everybody say noose. Good job. All right, the, the heart, um, and this is well known, is uh, the, the basic Greek word for this is the cardia, um, and it means the hidden springs of the internal life, and a verse in the Hebrew scriptures that really opens this concept up for us is in Proverbs 4, 
23, which says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So that basic direction, that basic drive to pursue after things, whether it's love, um, good and bad, it comes from the heart. We know from Jeremiah and other places in the scripture that the heart is desperately sick and wicked. And so if this desperately sick and wicked thing is giving the basic direction to our life, then the direction is going to be all out of whack. Can you relate to that? You with me? (laughs) No matter how much your mind knows the truth, this thing called your heart is giving it this other direction, and then you get caught up in this battle and relating to Paul where you're like, I want that, and I know it's good, but I find myself going this direction all the time. And I end up doing the thing that I most hate, and I end up doing the very thing that I most don't want to do, even though my mind knows that this is what's good. Some people tend to live out of their minds, and some people tend to live out of their hearts. Any Star Trek fans in here? Star Trek? No? None? Yeah? We got, yeah, yeah, we got, we got, uh, I'm, we got Spock, who lives out of the head. We got Captain Kirk, who lives out of the heart. And it's only when the two of them come together that they make a good team, right? So uh, most of us tend to live out of one or the other of these things. Uh, but there's a problem with that when it's in isolation, because the head without the heart is dry and dead religion. If you have a relationship with Christ that's just based in your mind, you will have a dead and dry relationship with the Lord. It will wither. On the other hand, if your relationship with the Lord is just out of your heart, you're going to have an idolatrous relationship because the heart without the head is all out of whack. And you're going to find yourself worshiping things and going into places you never should have gone and never should have bowed to. Some churches tend to be mind-based. Some churches tend to be heart-based. Some people tend to be mind-based. Some people tend to be heart-based. What we need is the full concert, the full wisdom of God's presence. We need the mind and the heart, which is where the conscience comes in. For this morning, a couple weeks ago, I was thinking about the conscience, and I was thinking back to kindergarten and uh, what I was taught in kindergarten about the conscience, and uh, I think it's just the basic thing in our culture. If you do a Google search of the conscience, what do you think the first image is going to be? Do you have a guess? Yeah, exactly, angel and demon. So the first, at least for me, when I did a Google search of the conscience, the first image was Homer Simpson with a demon on one shoulder and an angel on the other. And that's the basic, that's the basic uh, cultural concept of the conscience, right? And that's a, that's a pretty shallow understanding, and I don't find that all to be that much helpful because, of course, I know that there's a pull towards good and there's a pull towards bad, but when it really comes down to it, what in the world is the conscience? What is it? And what does God intend uh, for it? And so, as I began to pray that, what I sensed uh, the Spirit through uh, leading me through the Scriptures, what I sensed Him saying was that the conscience is that connector between the head and the heart. Specifically, the conscience is how the mind perceives the spiritual state of the heart. Let me say that again. The conscience is how the mind perceives the spiritual state of the heart. So in this, uh, the conscience, uh, 
the, the basic Greek word for this is sinaitesis. That's a fun one. Can you say that with me? Sinaitesis. And it's the connecting path between the head and the heart. It's the mind's perception of the spiritual state of the heart. Sinaitesis comes from two words. It comes from the Greek preposition soon, which means with, and it comes from the Greek ver- verb ido, which means to see. So in other words, the conscience is to see with. It's all about perception. What are you seeing? How is your mind seeing your heart? How does your mind see your heart? Go ahead and ask yourself that. How does my mind see my heart? When you look at your heart through the eyes of your mind, is your heart lacking? Is it dirty? Is it impure? Is it hurting? When you actually allow your mind to see your heart, what does it see? What doesn't it see? In Romans 2.15, Paul connects the mind, the heart, and the conscience in one thought. This is coming off of the famous passage where he lists uh, the depravity of man. And then he says, they demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. So when the mind looks at the heart, it either accuses us or tells us uh, that we're doing right or wrong. I need to give this just for a little bit of introduction before we jump into Hebrews chapter 8. This will be a helpful frame work. This is, this is from um, uh, Lee and Black's introduction to the New Testament. So Hebrews is all about the superiority of Christ. From beginning from the very first verse to the end of the verse, what Hebrews is, is a mic drop of Jesus is better. Bang, drop the mic. He's better. So it begins in verse 1 through verses 4. Christ is greater than any of the prophets. He's better. He's greater than any prophet. Then starting in verse 5 through chapter 218, Christ is greater than the angels. He's, he's not like Michael. He's not like Gabriel. He's much, much greater than that. And then the writer goes into talking about not only is he greater than the prophets, not only is he greater than the spirits that minister in the most holy place in heaven, he's greater than Moses, the one who gave you the law. He's greater than Joshua, the one who brought you into the land. Jesus is greater. And then it gets into the meat of Hebrews, and it's all about his work being greater. Christ's work is greater in every regard than all the other workers in all the history of Israel. He's got a greater priesthood, and that's the famous passage about Melchizedek, right? Jesus is not a priest like the Levites. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who we don't know anything about him other than he's, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and so the natural thought is, well, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, then not only is Jesus greater than Moses, but he's actually greater than Abraham too. And his covenant is a greater covenant. It's a much, much better covenant. And his sacrifice is a greater sacrifice. And his power is greater than any power. So that's, that's the framework as we jump into chapter 8. The writer has just finished this section on the priesthood of Melchizedek, that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priest. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 8.
chapter 8, verse 1. Here is the main point. All right, he's done a lot of thinking up to this point. He's done a lot of writing and a lot of saying what Jesus is greater than. Here's the main point. It's nice when the biblical writers do that. It's not very often. (laughs) Here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Our high priest is greater. He finished his work. He sat down at the right hand of God in the true place of worship, and that's where he ministers. Verse 3, And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, He would not even be a priest, since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With the people of Israel and Judah, this covenant, verse 9, will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turn my back on them, says the Lord, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Let's pause there for a second. Just a couple quick notes before we move on. That covenant, that's the one we live in. That's the covenant we live in. He set us free from the old one, and that's the one we live in, which means he's written his law, like the truth of who God is, his true and living word. He's written it on our minds and on our hearts, and I will forgive their wickedness, verse 12, and I will never again remember their sins. Just take a moment, close your eyes, and bask in that. The judge of all creation speaks over you through the blood of Christ and his new covenant today. I will never again remember your sins. What an amazing God. 
We praise you, God. We thank you for that. We invite you to just wash us with that today. Chapter 9, verse 1. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place to worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand and a table and, a sacred, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people which they had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. All right, so in the tabernacle and the temple, you had the outer court, and when you entered into the outer court, what's the first instrument that you would have come across, the first priestly thing? The altar, which is where what happened? Sacrifice. So anyone who comes into the outer court um, is viewing the sacrifices that are taking place. Then right behind that was the basin uh, where the priest then would wash. And so you had, you had first, um, when you entered into that outer court, you had uh, the altar and then the pool of water. And then you would enter into the tabernacle itself. And there were some things in that outer room, the holy place. Uh, there was the bread and the incense and the candles. But then there was a curtain, and the curtain divided that holy place, which was a special place to be, from the most holy place, and inside the most holy place, the most precious thing in the entire Hebrew religion, the most precious thing on earth, sat the mercy seat of God. The most tangible expression of the presence of God. The mercy seat of God. Now, if you were a devout Jew... You would bring your sacrifices and you would watch this take place and surely there was a sense of satisfaction because you were obeying and walking in submission to the law of the Lord. But you would look in knowing that you weren't allowed in there. And even for the most holy, even for the men who we think of as the great saints of the faith, only once a year was the high priest allowed into that most holy place. Like, how exclusive can you get? Once a year, one person, for a short amount of time, goes in to where the presence of God is tangibly there on the mercy seat. And so if you're a God-fearer, you're an average person, a common person, if, uh, if you're there and you're worshiping God, what you see is barrier after barrier after barrier. And you can long all you want to be in that place, but you know 
that if you step foot, you shall surely die. You can desire with everything in you to climb up on his lap because something inside of you is telling you that he is your father. You believe with the Psalms. The one thing I ask, the only thing I seek, to be in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to dwell upon his beauty there, gaze upon his beauty, dwell upon his words, and yet there's always this thing that is holding back, never able to enter in fully. I think I have the words up there for this that I wanted to highlight. By this, this is verse 8, chapter 9, by these regulations, all these restrictions, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance place to the most holy place was not freely open. It was not open. You were not allowed to access the most holy place as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. All right, this is the key thought. Verse 9, this is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the what? Conscience. The offerings that the priests give are not able to cleanse that connector between my mind and my heart. And so when the Jews came to the temple and the sacrifice was offered for them, from a regulation standpoint, from a ceremonial standpoint, they were clean. But their consciences remained guilty. And they were unable to then access the presence of God. The conscience is that natural buffer that God has planted within us to know that God is holy. We approach him with awe and reverence. This is an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the conscience of the people who bring them for that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not a part of this created world with his own blood, not by the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can what? Worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Just think how much more the perfect sacrifice of Christ cleanses your conscience so that you can worship the living God. When I prayed earlier, I meant, I believe with all my heart that neither angels nor demons nor suffering Nothing can separate me from God's love, but he's a gentleman and he will not rape me. 
and he will not rape you. Which means that you can hold yourself back from him. You can come up and look in and not step in. You can walk up to the edge of that cliff when he says jump and not jump. And he won't force you. He's a loving and tender father. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God, but I can certainly refuse it. And I can certainly refuse to take that step into the most holy place. And the more that my mind looks at my heart, and I'm going to be brutally honest with you, and sees the reality of how broken that thing is, how desperately sick that thing is, the more that that's my perception, the more that that's my conscience, the more I'll step away back into the bushes to cover myself with my self-righteousness, the fig leaves, to be outside of his gaze because I know when he looks upon me, I'm naked before him and he sees everything. That's the old system. That's the old way. The blood of Christ cleanses us and purifies us from every sinful deed so that we can worship. You can't worship what you're not with. Not truly. So in order to worship, we actually have to be in the presence of God. You with me? In order for worship to be alive and true, we have to be in his presence, which means we actually have to be in the most holy place for the true depths of worship to take place. And for us to enter that most holy place, we have to allow and receive the blood of Christ to cleanse our conscience so that when my mind looks at my heart, it doesn't say, wow, DJ, you've got a great heart. What it says is, he's cleansed even that which is most wicked. He's taken and made it new. Scripture is incredible. It has a word for transformation for every key component of your soul. Your minds are to be renewed. Therefore, be transformed through the renewal of your mind. Your hearts, though, he replaces and gives you a totally new one. Remember Ezekiel, behold, I give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. Renew your mind, a brand new heart, and a conscience that is cleansed so that when your mind looks at your heart, it sees the new heart that Christ put there, not because you worked at it, not because you're special, although you are in his image, not because you've earned it, but because the blood of Christ is greater. It's greater. It's greater. You know how bad you are? Jesus is greater. You know how great your sin is? His redemption is greater. You know how much the enemy attacks you? His protection is greater. I wrote a song a while back from Psalm 29, and the chorus of it is even his whispers are stronger than the enemy's scream. Even the whispers of the Holy Spirit are stronger than the screams of Satan. He's greater. He's greater. You should receive that. He's greater. Your hearts need to receive that. He's greater. He's greater. It's better. His redemption is full, full, complete. It's total. All right. That's a really cool thought. It's about to get real. It's about to get even better.
Verse 14, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they had committed under the first covenant. Now when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that that person who made it is dead. The will does not go into effect until the person's death. While the person is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. Verse 18, that is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Anyone get queasy around blood? It was a bloody mess. Everything had blood all over it. This is why the tabernacle and everything in it are just copies of the things in heaven. And they had to be purified with the blood of animals. But the real thing in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. We don't have time for this this morning, and I don't know the answer to this question. But why did the things in heaven have to be purified? It's an interesting verse. The real things in heaven had to be purified by a far better sacrifice than the blood of animals. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven, He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priests who are on earth who entered the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once and for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once and for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. The old system, chapter 10, verse 1, under the law of Moses, was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Let me read that verse again. Those sacrifices that were repeated again and again, they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship because they were never able to cleanse the person in such a way that they were able to enter into the most holy place to be in the presence of God. If, verse 2, they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once and for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, verse 3, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Reminded them over and over and over again. Verse 4, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats 
to take away sins. This is why when Christ came into the world, he said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Verse 8, first Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then Jesus said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our priest, our high priest, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with the people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, that was a chunk of scripture. Join me here. Verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in. Let's go right in to the presence of God with sincere hearts fully sprinkled. I'm sorry, with sincere hearts fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water this morning when I got up I went downstairs after I showered and got dressed and I had to run over to church we live right next to Drexel Church to open up and get everything ready over there so I was putting my shoes on and our daughter four-year-old daughter comes down the steps and she was the first one awake and I could tell she wasn't quite awake. She had, her, she had put her little robe on, and she was kind of stumbling in like this. And I'm in the middle. I'm, I've got a full morning. I'm trying to take care of a bunch of stuff, get my family ready, get church ready there, and drive an hour here, and all of that. And, but, like, she doesn't care. My four-year-old, she, she could care less what I had to do, right? So what she do? As soon as she sees me, she just walks right over, and gets down on my lap. I'm in the middle of tying my shoe. <laughs> and she sits down right on my lap. And I was about to put her down. And say listen girl I got to move. And then the Lord said to me. Because of the blood of Christ. We enter boldly. Into the most holy place. And so I just sat there. And I held that little girl. 
how much more so can we enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father? Me, who's sinful, if I know how to give good gifts to my daughter, Jesus says, if your sinful fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more so does your Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to those whom he loves? I'd like to propose to you a thought. Even this morning, and this is a little bit objective, I I know Parker Ford well because I've been walking with this church from afar for for about 10 years. So I know the body well from an outside. But even this morning, there was this sense of like, are we going to like burst into worship or are we going to hold back a little bit? And there's the, there was this tension even in the room this morning of are we going to just explode in praise or are, are we going to wait? It's a good question for you personally. It's a good question for our churches. Certainly a good question for me because there are many times that I live right on that edge and I feel the Lord like, just come on, son. And I'm like, ah, not today. Because I'm looking at my heart. Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let's go right in to his presence. The presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed pure water. when we come to the tabernacle of God and we encounter that altar, the altar that we encounter is the cross. And sacrifices are not repeated there over and over again. Christ is not on that cross. It was once and for all. And so when we come, we are not reminded of our guilt. When we come and stand before the cross, we were reminded of his greatness and righteousness. And when we move past that cross and we encounter the pool of water for washing, it's not a washing that you have to do over and over and over again. He's already washed you. Peter, I've already washed you. All that that you need, all that you require is the washing of your feet as as you walk through this world. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Take a drink of this water. You'll never thirst again. It'll bubble up within you to eternal life. That's the water we're washed in. That's the the altar that we come to, the altar of Christ. I'm a worship leader. That's my truest identity. So when I preach, I lead worship. And so um, what I asked for this morning is that we would actually build worship into after the sermon because it's really helpful to move from a place of worship where you're worshiping a little bit with your minds and engaging the truth to now to enter into worship with our hearts and to actually give the Lord room to be obedient to this and give the Lord room uh, to glorify his name and enter into the most holy place. So I'm going to call the worship team forward at this point. 
and we're going to sing a couple of songs. And I, and, I, and I specifically asked that we would pick songs that have very little to do with us. There's a lot of great songs that are about me and about you being cleansed, but the greatest songs are the ones where we lose ourselves, and it's not really us that we're looking at. It's just Jesus and his glory that we're looking at. And so we're going to sing songs about Christ in his glory because he's already dealt with us. He's already dealt with us. That's been dealt with. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to question that. You don't have to spend an hour getting your heart ready. It's ready. Let's enter right in. Enter right in. Right now, we're going to enter into the presence of God. While I was practicing my sermon on Friday afternoon, the favorite song I've had over the last couple months, the one that the Lord has ministered to me over and over and over again, is a song by Sarah McMillan called The King of My Heart. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain that I drink from. Let the king of my heart, let the king of my heart, and then it sings, you are good, you are good. And while I was wrapping up my sermon, I was listening to Pandora, so it's just this random mix. And right when I got to this part in practicing, sure enough, the king of my heart comes on and starts playing. And I looked, and Paul had already chosen that song for today. The testimony of two or three witnesses The Holy Spirit is speaking. He's alive and active and he's speaking today. So let's stand and let's just give ourselves fully in worship. Don't hold back. And that doesn't have to look crazy or weird. Just let your heart free. Let your mind free. Let your conscience be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And let's pray as we enter into this place of worship boldly. God, we receive from you the truth of your word. Everything that we're lacking was taken care of 2,000 years ago. Every battle that we have to fight today, tomorrow, next year, every battle that we're struggling with right now, you already took care of it. It's done. Jesus said it's finished. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So let's not live as orphans. Let's not live as people who have been abandoned. Let's live with the truth. I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons, nothing in all of creation, high or low, (laughs) deep within me, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. We receive this again fresh. We enter in boldly, not to do anything for us. God, I'm not so interested in me. I'm not so interested even in Parker Ford, though I love this church and I bless it in your name. What I'm most interested in right now is that you would be ministered to, that you would be blessed Join me in the word in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord. Worship his holy name. Who are we, God, that you are mindful of us? And yet you invite us into the most holy place. You seat us on thrones with your son. Who are us? Who are we, God, that you're mindful of us? And yet you give us that which is most precious, the most precious job in all of creation which is to steward the name of Jesus Christ. We steward your name, God. We hold on to your name, God, this morning. We bless your name. You've given us the most important job in all of creation, which is worship. We worship you. We worship you. We worship you. We sing in your name. Lead us into your presence. You yourself are the great priest. You lead us, Jesus.